Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, a series about how space technology, colonization, and exploration are transforming our solar system. Anything bio in Venus is not connected in any form or other. So, bio signature, bio detection, biological habitability, all that has been disconnected from Venus. There's a few of us who are trying to connect some pieces, but there's just a problem with a few, really. It's getting bigger and bigger. Yes. So, yes. So bioengineering becomes really difficult to deal with because of the conditions on the surface and the clouds. But we can talk about that later if you want. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds great. Um, so what should we start with? Okay. Um, I was going to plan to ask you about... Um, more about the study and the takeaways and um, the uh, potential phototrophy in, in the cloud layers and the, uh, you know, the UV flux and, and um, uh, potential species. And yeah, it goes from there. Well, you know, we don't know much about Venus. We know uh, some pieces of information and some of that information is very specific, but some other piece of information is very broad. There's lots of uncertainty. And so many of us think that maybe there are other ways to interpret the data that's out there. And if, even if there's not, there's nice, it's always good to think of alternative ways to interpret data. So there are different ways to look at habitability of any environment, be it Mars, place on earth or Venus. And what we did was try to back up and break apart habitability in little pieces at one time. So if we're thinking about photosynthesis, we thought, okay, let's just look at the light. Let's only focus on the light. So look at the photophysical aspects. So that is one half of the paper. Another half is looking just at the chemical, the chemistry. And not all the chemicals out there, but just the basic ones. Is it too acidic or is it not acidic enough? Things like that. So we looked at a photophysical approach and then kind of a chemical approach. And of course, we can't then jump from there to actual biological habitability, but our aim was to take step one and two, if you will. So for the photophysical part, we looked at how visible light filters through the clouds and how ultraviolet light filters through the cloud and a little bit of the infrared. And what we saw is that once the light goes through the tops, into the middle clouds and lower clouds. It's a really, really soft kind of light. It has enough power that you get here at the surface of the earth, but there's just not a lot of UV. It's a lot less UV than what, the, what you'd get here in North America. So it's softer per se, that it's not that harsh, but there's enough uh, energy, there's enough photons there to power photosynthesis as we know it, even solar cells. And then there's lots of actually sufficient uh, energy out in the infrared and it took me a little bit to get there but once I got there it got really interesting that there are organisms microorganisms on earth that absorb over in the near infrared like maybe 1,900 to 1,100 nanometers but Venus has some things way out further out and no one's really talked about what happens here on earth that much because it's kind of hard to measure but what we didn't end up realizing is that, yeah, there's infrared radiation coming from the sun that comes down through the clouds, but there's also infrared radiation coming up from the surface because it's so hot. 
and that the wavelengths were again, let's say between 900 and 1100 nanometers and a little bit further up. So if you just think about wavelengths, it's the same wavelengths that many of the, or some of the photosynthetic pigments here on earth would absorb. So there's something called bacteriochlorophyll B, which is like chlorophyll, but it's a, a photosynthetic pigment that's more specialized for bacteria that come from more specialized environments, especially those with longer wavelengths of light that are only accessible. So if you think about those types of microbes, they could absorb that infrared radiation that comes either from the sun on the Venus clouds or from the surface. So once we put all that together, we had sufficient amount of light to support basic photosynthesis. We had less UV light than what's found on the surface of Earth. And that there were two sources of infrared radiation from the sun and then from the surface. So that technically or theoretically would allow like around the clock photosynthesis across the day and a little bit throughout the night. So that would be really, really different than the photosynthesis that could occur, you know, here on Earth that way that it only happens during the day. And then there's a dark mode where microbes and plants will then use a different form of metabolism to process their energy. So just thinking theoretically, you know, almost like science fiction, if you will, but speculation that you could have this cloud layer and you can have groups of microbes, like clouds, if you will, migrate up and down when the sun's up there and then migrate down towards the bottom to absorb the infrared radiation from the surface. And that if you all these microbes moved around together, right, in some big group, from a distance, it could look like an algal bloom, like in an ocean or a shallow sea or near a beach, a nice big algal bloom. And that's what me and another colleague have been saying that if, if you squint hard enough, if you look at Venus, the swirls and contrasts on Venus sometimes do look like algal blooms. Of course, we don't know if they're algal blooms. That's just a lot of speculation. It could be just chemicals that are floating around altogether and you see density changes, etc. So it's just an interesting theory. So backing up, we have no way to prove that biologically. All we can say is that the light is sufficient to support that type of uh, biological condition. And then in the second half of the paper, we went back in and revisited some of the old Venus data, one called the measurements of refractive index. And then we also looked at what's called microwave absorption or radio occultation. And both of those measures are a little uncertain, but they give you some interesting chemical information. And from that, people have inferred for some time now that there's just a lot of sulfuric acid in the clouds. And they're talking straight sulfuric acid, H2SO4, no derivative of it, and quite a bit. And that amount has been somewhat intriguing that there were some groups some time ago that calculated the pH or the acidity in such levels. And I went back in and revisited those calculations and got vastly different numbers. And I started doing more digging. It looks like some other groups were also doing the same thing at the same time. And we all sort of converged on using a different way to interpret acidity, not the typical pH scale, but something called the Hammett acidity factor, which is more appropriate if you have a really, really strongly acidic solution where pH begins to fail. Under those conditions, the acidity is astounding. There's absolutely zero way life as we know it could survive there. There's no way, not as we know it. So even if there's enough light, 
the acidity is just just crazy. It's just crazy. So what we did is went back and looked at some of the primary data and looked at how they interpret that and wonder if there's similar ways to find other molecules that would fit into that scheme, if you will. And what we found is that you could have sulfuric acid, but if you had a little bit of a neutralized form of sulfuric acid in there, you can still get the same optical properties, refractive index, and the same absorption properties that radio occultation. It's a little bit different, but it's not outside the error of those measurements. So we then kind of ran with that and did some preliminary, if you will, physical chemistry calculations and comparisons and reevaluated what the acidity of the clouds might be. So with a few assumptions in there, we uh, came out with a range of pH that is a lot less acidic than what is currently thought or would be currently considered if it was pure sulfuric acid. And in that range, if it, all the assumptions hold true, there are microorganisms here on earth that can survive under those acidic conditions. So that's kind of where we started. Another parameter built into that would be something called water activity. And it just tells you how much water there is for basic life. So let's say you can have water that's freely floating around and water that's bound to the surface of something or bound something bound to like a, some particle. The water that's bound tightly is not free for anything. It's just bound, it'll stay there forever. But life needs free water, like we can drink and things like that. So that's called water activity. And in life, I'm sorry, on earth, that value needs to be like 0.6 and above with some researchers going down to 0.56 something perhaps. But if you round up to one sig fig, let's just say it needs to be 0.6 and above or so. Now, if one assumes the sulfuric acid content in Venus clouds to be way up there, like 90%, 85%, the water activity is this terrible. There is no free water. There's just a tiny bit of free water. And again, life as we know it would never survive. Just not a, not a chance. But if you reevaluate and say, okay, maybe not that much sulfuric acid, that part of it's neutralized by something maybe we say called ammonia to give you ammonium sulfate. If you drop the concentrations down and increase the concentration of the neutralized version, all of a sudden the acidity levels go way down and then the water activity actually begins to go up. So again, with the assumptions that we made, under the conditions that could be in the clouds, there are microorganisms on earth that can survive under those acidic regimes and water activity range. So with that said, we believe that uh, Venus and clouds could be a habitable zone for microorganisms. There's enough light for phototrophy and the chemistry could be okay for Earth-like life. But the only way to really know is to then go and remeasure everything. That's about the only way we're gonna figure this out. Amazing. Um, thanks for that detailed uh, you know, explanation and... Um, is it too much? And, and, but then also clarification because uh, that, that really helps uh, provide more clarity when, when reading uh, study and, and, and manuscript. A lot of questions as well. Yeah, go, go. Um, and the solar radiances in, in the Venetian middle cloud layer is, is 
you know, 56 to point 56 to, to around 50 kilometers in altitude and, and lower clouds around 50 to 47.5 kilometers in altitude. And um, with, with, with similar photosynthesis or, or, or similar um, solar irradiances uh, comparable to that on Earth's surface. Um, and, and then you mentioned um, the Earth's surface receives around 46 watts per meter squared across the UVA and UVB, um, which, uh, which is seven times higher than those in the middle cloud layer, uh, which receives 6.7 watts per meter squared. But then I've also heard about um, how if you're above the cloud layer, um, you there's might tons have of UV. Yeah, yeah. There's tons. So there's these chemicals like sulfur dioxide and a couple others that would absorb the UV radiation and then scatter it out, and so it prevents it from going down. Okay. And then I think there's also uh, some of the UV gets reflected as well. Okay. I think it's both. Gosh. And so our ozone layer on Earth is similar. It absorbs lots of the ultraviolet. And so it doesn't come all the way down. It gets absorbed. And then so like if something absorbs radiation, it can then just release the radiation again, but it releases in all these different directions. Or it just releases heat. Right? So just like a lamp, right? If you hang out in your lamp, you'll get hot. You'll emit the heat. You won't emit the light again, but some chemicals will just re-emit the same light. But it goes all these different directions instead of going straight down. So that's called scattering. And then you can also reflect light as well. So a lot of the ultraviolet that comes through Earth's atmosphere gets absorbed by the ozone layer and then other parts get uh, reflected out. And similarly in Venus, as far as I understand, there's sulfur dioxide and then there's other chemicals of unknown um, structure and names that absorb, also absorb ultraviolet light. And then that prevents that light from reaching the middle and lower clouds. So it's like a filter, if you will. It's almost perfect for life, really, if you think about it. Like they say Jupiter is perfect for Earth, right? That a comet or asteroid would come in and it gets sucked in by Jupiter's gravity. So it's perfect for Earth. The ozone layer is perfect for our life. And I would say that that sulfur dioxide layer could be perfect for a little thin layer of life in the middle of lower clouds. Again, all speculation. I love but it. Fun. Yeah. Um, and this, uh, the reflected infrared radiation from the surface um, uh, that's not reflected. That is emitted from the surface. So the surface emitted. is freaking hot, right? It's like 700 Kelvin or so. Okay. And that means the interior of the surface of the planet's also mega hot. So this heat emanates out. And so it's just like having a rock that's super hot, red hot, and you can feel the heat from it. But that heat actually could be measured in photons and wavelengths. And you can then sit on top of the planet, either from a micro, like a telescope on Earth or some orbiter, and you could measure the light coming out. Like say, say on the night side when the sun's on the back, you can actually measure infrared radiation coming through the clouds. And and how much percent of that infrared radiation would the bacteria absorb uh, from, from you know the 
the surface and 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 heat from Venus or or from the sun? Do we think? I couldn't tell you how much they would absorb. It all depends on how, like how much bacteria or how much microorganisms or how many microorganisms would be there. What we could do though is look at the photon density, if you will, and compare it to what other microbes may use. So apparently there are studies, at least one, that finds evidence of photosynthetic microorganisms way down, like 2,000 meters down, near a geothermal emission, like um, a geothermal emission. So there's a lot of heat coming from that, but with that heat, there's also light. And these folks, I think, measured back one of the bacterial chlorophyll abundances there. It may have been A or C. I think it might have been C. And I think they measured the uh, maybe the DNA of different microbes that would be photosynthetic there. So they are saying that that is mild evidence, if you will, for phototrophy way down below in the ocean where there's no sunlight. The only light comes from a geothermal emission. And they measured the amount of light that's coming out, photons per second, and per meter squared, if you will. And just compare the numbers. What comes from the surface into Venus clouds is more than sufficient. It's way more than those values. And then there's uh, some evidence in the Black Sea for pretty deep photosynthesis coming from the sun. I think it's like a couple hundred meters. And they've also measured how much sunlight comes through. And they do have evidence of microbes, I think photosynthesizing down there. And again, if you look at the photon densities, those are less than what you find in Venus's clouds when you compare what's coming from the surface of Venus. So when just look at the numbers, there's sufficient photons per second, per meter squared that come from the surface that could support photosynthesis. The only caveat is the measurements on Earth, if I got this right, were done between six and 800 nanometers. And what I have is way out towards like a thousand or so. So in photosynthesis, wavelength matters, but really it's the number of photons that matter. So if you have something that has a large energy versus something that has half of it, you just need twice as many photons. So even if it's a longer wavelength, lower energy, it's okay. You just need to absorb a little bit more. Like instead of one photon, you might need two or three. And um, in the middle and lower cloud layer, would, would most of the infrared radiation absorption from these, you know, potential biosignatures come from Venus rather than the sun? Uh well, during the night, it would be only from the surface because there's nothing coming from the sun during the night. During the night, but during the day, the sun would be the dominant source. Okay. Right, so during the day, you have this high power, but soft in UV, but also a little bit infrared energy source coming during the day. And this is the the crazy part: the day. If I have this right. The day might be like seven hours, seven days. So it's a long time being in the sun. And then it's a long time being out from the sun. So that's why I think it's very interesting. So if you have a photosynthetic organism here that spent days outside of the sun, 
it probably won't survive very well unless it adapts to retain its energy. But with this environmental condition, there's always a source of light energy, always. There's this constant low, so low power source of energy coming from the sun, either the day or the night. Yeah, was, uh, the Venus rotates really uh, slowly, but the atmosphere rotates really quickly. And so right. a day on Venus can last 243 Earth days. Right, but the clouds that move around quicker. So I think you can be in the sun for like five, six, seven, eight days and then outside okay. the sun for five, six, seven, eight days. Nice. Um, and what other kind of uh, takeaways or, or, or key points that did you and your team uh, learn uh, from this, uh, this excellent study and publication entitled the potential for phototrophy in, in, in venus clouds venus is maybe a lot more interesting for astrobiology than a lot of people give it credit for and perhaps what we think venus is is maybe not 100 percent correct that it's not maybe not it's acidic fully oxidized hellhole it, it may not be it may be the clouds might be just completely acidic and completely oxidized and there's nothing possible to live in there. But I think what we took away from this paper is that the basic information that a lot is based on, there are other ways to interpret it. Yeah, uh, this morning, you know, I spent uh, a good amount of time just looking into aerobiology. Uh, you know, study of the these airborne biological particles and their movement and impact on on uh, humans' life and and life on Earth so far. Um, yeah, these here are these uh, they call them primary biological aerosol particles, P, right. PPAB, and it, it consists of bacteria, archaea, fungi, algae, lichen, lichen that that you know they they float and, and and flying in Earth's atmosphere is really interesting. Yeah, and so there is a guy, I think his last name is Amato. That guy does crazy, um, like, omics type of work on cloud aerosols. And he works in a particular place, I think in France, where it's high enough, but it's near a mountain pass, so there's a lot of water. And he's measuring, so he's not really, really high up, right? But he's high up for sure. He's measuring metabolism in these cloud droplets. So before, right, let's say 10 years ago, they said, well, no, anything that's up there is totally dormant. It goes up, it comes down. The higher up it goes, the more dormant it gets because it's just a cold and there's no water. But for sure, it goes up, it's got to come down. And no one doubts that because we have gravity, we have settling, we have rains, we have storms, et cetera. But what this guy's showing and some other people is it goes up and then once it's up there in certain areas, you can start to measure certain metabolic changes. And some of the changes he's starting to see correlate very well with the predicted, with the adaptations or the type of, let's say, metabolism you predict in that type of environment, where there's a little bit of water, it's cold, there's this, there's that. And you expect these certain metabolic features, and that's what he's beginning to see. So I think there is more evidence now that in certain cloud particles, there is microbial activity. 
Now, whether or not a microbe can divide under these conditions has not been shown yet. But people have taken those microbes, taken back to a lab and just incubated them without changing it and saw a division. But that's because they heated the temperature up a little bit. So in there, we know that up in these particles, they're viable. But are they metabolizing and dividing up in these uh, particles is the big question. So we do have evidence that metabolism is likely occurring, whether or not divisions occurring is out there. And then how that applies to Venus is, of course, there are the aerosols and the particles, but they remain a lot because there are these constant cloud layers there. So these particles remain up there. So that's a big difference that on Earth, they come up, but they will come down. And on Venus, they may come up and stay up just a lot, lot longer and then eventually come down. But for the clouds to be the way they are, most of the particles will always remain up there and only a few then come back down. If you look at the, like the equilibrium rates, if you will, at least how I see it. And, uh, the other major, major, major difference is the temperature. So when we go up, it gets colder and colder and colder. And basic fundamental chemistry says reaction rates plummet at low temperatures, which means biological rates for anything will plummet. But Venus is totally different. And in the middle clouds, you know, it can be almost like a hundred, you know, 50, 60 to 100 degrees. You know, I think the range could be 25 to 100 in what we are considering the habitable zone. So that's warm. It's not a cold, dry, it's a dry environment, but it's not cold. And it's not higher in UV that much compared to what happens here on Earth. We have the surface radiation on Earth, surface UV radiation on Earth. But as you go up in the atmosphere, you get more and more ultraviolet radiation. We're talking in the middle of clouds where the, the level of UV is less than what's on the surface of the Earth. So that's a benefit. There is maybe a little bit of water around. It's kind of unclear how much water would be inside the, ar the aerosols. And it's a lot warmer. And they stay up there longer. Yeah, it'd be quite a fascinating study to evaluate, you know, just how high these airborne bacteria rise and fall on Earth and how that would compare to, to, to the Venetian clouds. Um, so yeah, people have gone really, really high up and they measure things. Most of those uh, microbes they find, I believe, are spores. And so they have fully sporulated, protect themselves in the environment and they're found up there. And I believe if you take them to the lab, you can then reanimate them and bring them back out of the spore stage. So they are going higher and higher finding things. They are finding metabolic activity at certain altitudes, especially when there's like a kind of a nice cloud layer with water. So it's getting there, you know, it's getting there. I think people are starting to say that there is a microbiome in the cloud layer, but how active is the microbiome? You know, how unique is it? So I think that's kind of an exciting, uh, one of the exciting things that are happening right now. That people, I guess, initially thought that whatever is on the clouds is just some byproduct of what's on the surface, as opposed to, is there a unique microbiome up there? And I think that's where people are trying to go right now. Yes. Um, was also reading about uh, NASA's one kilogram aircraft bioaerosol collector, the, the ABC, uh, uh, flown at um, altitudes around 14 kilometers for 
for uh, several flights, around four four flights back in 2017 in the lower stratosphere. Um, and I say that uh, these biosignatures uh, of of the bacteria on Earth can be detected up to 38 kilometers. Wow. Um, and and withstand much stronger levels of UV radiation up there as well. Right. But but that these these airborne microbes are really an important vector for for microbial diversity and 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 their um, really winds on Earth distribute these bacteria throughout all sorts of you know biomes and landscapes and um, it's crazy, huh? Uh, yeah, and you think like viruses as well, like even yeah. ones that are pathogenic or can give sickness, they would come in across the ocean for our winds as well. So we're like we're connected in, in so many different ways. Um, there's one study found that the most common taxa was the Firmicutes, mm -hmm. with Bacilli and, and Clostridia classes. Right, those two uh, classes will make spores. Like the Bacillus and the Clostridia, they make spores. They're gram-positive spore-forming guys, so then they, they can survive a long time just in that spore state. Um, so yeah, you know what's really wild? Right? I'm sure you know this. Uh, the sands in the Sahara get lofted by the winds and then end up seeding the forest in the Amazon and serve as nutrient sources for the Amazon. Along with that is going to come all sorts of microorganisms. So they're floating across the, the pond there. Correct. <laughs> incredible. And another st study was mentioning that uh, the Staphylococcus SP samples associated with fecal matter from agriculture fields and, and, and livestock and human wastewater were, were in actually high abundance throughout the atmospheric boundary layer on five kilometers in altitude. Um, Great. <laughs> yeah. That's like driving up the five, huh? To the Central Valley, get a gas mask next time. It, um, I don't know, you start to wonder these airborne bacteria um, highways, um, you know, they're, they're important vectors that uh, we could, you know, also deliberately use for, for geoengineering and, and bioengineering to help improve the quality of life on Earth as well. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity and potential there. Yes. That's very interesting for sure. Um, another question add here, you, you know, if you could collect other data on Venus and, and the cloud layers and, and of the bacteria um, or, or, or potential biosignatures, um, you know, what uh, mission or, or, or experiment uh, should we launch and, and at what altitude and, and layer to fly at? The pie in the sky would be to have something that is in the middle clouds and just hangs out there, like some balloon that allows it to go up and down. It just camps out there. 
doesn't drop to the surface. It just camps out there. And so you can measure things over time. And if we're talking, you know, no budget right now, just pie in the sky, a really cool thing to have like a microscope in there. Because all these chemical analyses are important, but in the end, the odd thing is you just need to see it. Like, is there a bag in there? A little bag called microbe, or is there not? Like you can detect an amino acid and say, oh, there's life. But then you look at it and see there's actually no membrane. There's no nothing. It's just a chemical soup, which means it's not life. It's just some origins of life mixture. And that's a problem with the biosignature. So it would be great to do chemical analysis for water-soluble biochemicals. But it would also be nice just to take the aerosol and just put it in a microscope and look at it. And there is something called right now life detection microscope that's designed specifically for that. It's come out, it's out of Japan and they've been proposing that for a Venus type of mission. I think that would be really, really cool. So to answer a simple question, I'd love to do type of a balloon, just camp out in the middle lower clouds, with the middle clouds, and then just sample, 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 study all sorts of different forms of chemistry from the inorganic side to the organic side. And then really, really nice to just measure all the different properties of the aerosols, what they look like, what they're composed of, what there's their acidity, how much actual water is in there. Yes, yes. Uh, that would be really the meaningful mission. And, and That would be very expensive and it doesn't satisfy everybody's needs. And it doesn't make sense to go to a planet and study biochemistry and organic chemistry and biology first, unless you already know life is there. It doesn't make any sense monetarily. So it's better to go and do basic geology, geochemistry, as you approach like this question of habitability. I think the return on investment is just greater. And I agree with NASA's philosophy that way. Just do it incrementally. And if you do like a Viking mission, go for the gold. And when it doesn't work, then you're in the real pickle, which I think what happened after Viking. They went for the life detection experiments in Mars and they had results that seem to work. And then they look like there maybe were just contamination issues. And then the Mars program, I think, got really hurt after that because they didn't know what to do. Because all of a sudden it wasn't a, a great place to go to search for life. But then they redeveloped their plan and then did it incrementally, right? And then each different mission has brought back so much information. And instead of going for the gusto for the gold in the end, instead it's like build the foundation to understand what Mars is all about. And then now we're finally getting somewhere. I think it was just a report yesterday that they have found evidence of aromatic compounds. I think they've confirmed that. It was a report. I didn't read the actual article. And I think they're finding evidence of free ammonia which is actually super interesting. So now they're getting there, right? It's taking so many missions. They're starting to narrow it down now. So I would think for Venus, consider how much expensive all this stuff is. The plan that they have right now is probably, I think, maybe one of the better plans, a good plan. Study as much as you can the atmosphere, but also go down on the surface and see what other information you get because that's also important. But, you know, uh, Rocket Lab, you know, they were trying to focus on the habitability mission for sure. Whether or not they're going to do that, I don't know.
um, yeah, as time shall tell. Um, I think uh, was also on on this proposed mission um, could also integrate some sort of uh, technology uh, similar to the uh, these. Uh, devices that sequence DNA from the air with 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 HEPA filters, um, and is quite interesting. Um, yeah. It is very interesting, and that you come up with the question that we don't know if Venus is really habitable or not, but we do know there's interesting chemistry there. So if your choice is to send you know, let's say you have, you know, 500 grams or what something you have, you have an instrument, you put a PCR instrument there, or you put like a chemical analyzer. And it's, it's a great question, you know? And another good question is would a PCR, if you even knew there was life there, would a PCR experiment work there? Because that assumes that the ba fundamental bases that you use in the DNA are exactly the same over there. GATC. If you don't have GATC, most PCR don't work. There are modified versions of PCR that are much more error prone. They'll amplify almost anything, but that's not going to give you a specific result. So that is another fundamental question. And I would think that, in my opinion, that all these planets in the solar system are seeded by certain chemicals from space basic fundamental chemical ingredients that look like basic amino acids like raw little amino acids nucleobases that the basic fundamental structures for life might be similar across the planets but i think that it would then be it would diversify that here we have gatc which is the result of all these billions of years of evolution there are other bases but those are the four main ones that similarly if there's life elsewhere Maybe the root component there, you have purine or pyrimidine, but the decorations around these ring structures would be different, such that it's no longer G or A or T or C, it's some other letter. And so in that case, if you have the same polyphosphate backbone that DNA has, also have the ribose or the deoxyribose or even just the ribose, and then you have something different than GATC, PCR is not going to work. You won't be able to sequence anything. Now, with that said, there are people out there thinking about this. Okay, what if you go, how do you amplify something that would be like a DNA molecule but doesn't have GTC? So people are working on that as well. Great to hear. Um, and the, I think that theory that um, the, the, the DNA base pairs diversify across other bodies and planets, it, I think it makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I just don't think the same four bases would be, let's say on Mars, or the same exact 20 amino acids. I think you could maybe have a different set of amino acids. Let's say the life, let's say 10 years from now, we find a whole ecosystem on subsurface and we begin to study it. I would think just right now that you're not gonna get the same set of 20 amino acids or four bases that we have here. There'll be a different set of amino acids and different set of bases. If it's based on the same fundamental properties that we have here, which I think is reasonable assume it would be. Because in comets and meteors, you can find amino acids like glycine, alanine. There's a couple others that are found as well. So the basic raw ingredients are delivered to Earth, delivered to Mars, delivered to Venus. So if one assumes a chemical evolution theory, 
but those are the root structures diversification from there yeah that makes a lot of sense to me and to you apparently it's quite it's quite profound yes yeah um, it is profound and for, for for the second half um it'd be great to discuss about how we could bioengineer these um airborne microbes and and bacteria to to um you know support uh you know humans in the clouds of venus or 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 humans here on earth and and in other planets um yeah that's super cool you know i never thought about that even when i read that paper yesterday or that report i didn't really think about it in context of venus it's not at all but now the moment you said it just now i'm starting to like these things are coming to me it's very interesting that with the chemicals in the clouds you could probably figure out a way to convert that to a fuel to support some type of human activity there are there are some chemical models out there that support the presence of hydrogen gas in the atmosphere so if you just harness the gas all of a sudden you have a hydrogen tank you can fuel all sorts of stuff there is sulfuric acid and I'm sure there are ways to get nice fuel-like stuff from sulfuric acid. You can reduce it, get H2S. I'm sure there's another way to pull out H2 from in some form or another. Do you think there's probably some clever ways, either pure chemistry or through some form of biotechnology to extract useful chemicals from the clouds to support, let's say, like, an, like a habitat? A human habitat that would be super cool yes yeah yes it would um <laughs> i'm wondering if there's a way to uh, like a robotic mission that could sustain itself somewhere by using the chemicals as fuels and not only be relied on solar energy because once you get deep down enough in the atmosphere you're going to lose some of the sun and you won't be able to operate and then it gets covered with all the particles like what happens on Mars. What if you have a little inlet to sucking gas, then you can maybe constantly make some little fuel. That would be cool. Yeah. Yeah, that would be super cool. You know, a Titan is a great place for that. That'd be a no-brainer for Titan because there's all those organics there. That's already a fuel. Yeah. The, um, atmospheric vapor extraction is, is, is relatively easy and, and, can be done with like lightweight um, equipment. Um, yeah, if, uh, and, and the, um, you know, hydrogen would be a limiting factor, but I think what you mentioned about the fuel extraction from the sulfuric acid and um, is definitely feasible. Um, and the point, I think zero, zero, zero three percent water vapor i think is uh actually more than we realized to um support life forms on venus um, so that's a good question so i think some remote measures give it at six parts per million others give it around 30 when you measure like via like remote spectroscopy and 
if you do the just really basic thermodynamic calculation work backwards, which people have done, and there's a couple of groups have done that, there's not enough water. So if, that, if that's six and 30 ppm of water in the vapor phase, the amount that's actually in, let's say, the solute, the aerosol phase, the aerosol phase is actually not that much. It's not enough to support life as we know it on Earth. But the, the logic in this loop here is one has to assume what the sulfuric acid concentration is. So if you assume that it's 90%, let's just say 90, 95%, if you work backwards thermodynamics that you have this much water vapor, but you have this much sulfuric acid in the aerosol, how much water would be in the aerosol? It's not very much, not enough to support life. So that's kind of the issue. And that's what people would say that it's too dry to support life. And we agree, but that's assuming that you have pure sulfuric acid. But what if it is 90% sulfuric acid or I'm sorry, was 90% sulfuric acid, but half of it got neutralized. Maybe there's ammonia or some other basic species, basic meaning like it, a, a proton acceptor that bubbles up through the atmosphere into the clouds and neutralizes this. Then it's a different ballgame. For people who are interested in spectroscopy, they would argue you need a certain amount of, let's say the sulfate, the sulfuric acid to give this absorption feature. And we're saying, you still have that much. It's just, is it fully acidic or has it been partly neutralized? The amount there, the total amount stays the same, what's called a mass balance. Mass balance remains the same. It's just the form of that balance. Is it in the acidic form or in the non-acidic form? So we're saying it could be a mixture of the two. It doesn't have to be either or, it could be a mixture. And in that mixture, you can have a small little habitable environment. And that sounds like really important work and research you and your team did. Hope uh, so. Yes. Hope so. There's been no blowback yet. We, we put uh, out two papers recently that go against the conventional wisdom of Venus stuff. And we got some blowback for our first paper, but there's been nothing published in the actual peer-reviewed place, peer-reviewed journals yet that refute what we've done. We had a few abstracts being submitted here and there, but they haven't made it yet, not just yet to a publication. I'm sure it's getting there, but we'll see. We're trying to we're trying to bring a different viewpoint into Venus, and there's a couple other groups that are doing the same similar thing. Are you familiar with Sarah Sager from MIT? Her work. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so there, and her whole committee of people that she works with are also trying to look at Venus from a different perspective, instead of just categoric, categoric, categorically ruling things out. Instead, trying to systematically bring things into the fold by experimentation and reanalysis of data. So I appreciate what they're doing. The team that I work with, we are also doing the same thing independently. So there is actually some odd synergy between their group and what we're doing. Although we don't necessarily work together on a lot of stuff or really anything right now. We do communicate. Nice. Um... So here's a good one. So in that group, there's a guy called Paul Rimmer, who um, I forgot exactly where he's at. But he put out a paper about looking at the SO2 and water vapors and how they just didn't match. So he was predicting, you know, that for the aerosol composition to match the SO2 and water vapor abundance profiles, 
the acidity in the aerosol can't be so low. It needs to be much, much higher in his model. And in parallel, we put out our paper saying that if you read, look at the refractive index and the radio occultation data, you can also interpret something that has much, much less acidity. So his model and our model are congruent, but they approach it from very, very, very different ways. And so that's just kind of cool that there are groups trying to rethink about what's going on. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying that I want Venus to be a habitable planet, blah, blah, blah. I just think it's interesting to look at and going back to the data from the 70s and 60s and 80s, we're starting to realize that there is certain ways to interpret it, that the way they interpret is correct, but there are perhaps alternative ways to interpret the data. Or there might be alternative interpretations per se. Yeah, and um, so, so on the bioengineering side, um, I think it, it would be feasible to um, have, you know, these hose lines uh, or, or pumps uh, to, to, to extract uh, various forms of uh, particles and, and, and vapor, um, and that there are these uh, wavar, the, the atmospheric water um, extraction reactors um, can be used to extract water. And, and so, um, you know, if we could pull together that, that, that water uh, vapor in, into a liquid or, or uh, you know, liquid phase or, or, or gaseous phase, um, I think then, you know, you, you put together a nice habitable environment for microbes and, and bacteria. Um, with that six to 30 parts per million of water. Um, so I don't know what that contraption would look like. Uh, gets well, quite you know, if you <laughs> yes. go below the clouds, there's a ton more water, a ton more. So if one had a technology to harvest water for reasons A through B, you could, if the probe was stable enough, it could drop down even further and pick up more water. And, and um, how much more water? That's a damn good question. Uh, it's up for debate. Yeah, but, but you would sacrifice the amount of UV uh, and 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 sunlight uh, levels below those clouds, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. 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 But um, it brings up an interesting point, right? If you, in those cases, then what could be a fuel source? Not the sun, if you don't want to go nuclear because that's hell of expensive, just suck it in and use it right there. That'd be awesome. In-situ resource utilization of Venus. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and but if we wanted to hang out, you know, in in the cloud layer, uh, middle of the lower cloud layers, we'd I think we'd have close to one atmospheric pressure, very similar to Earth. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, whether we would suck in um, sulfuric acid and and other uh, chemicals uh, certainly holds potential. 
it was it but in regards to the um the um amount of sunlight and photon density um might not uh matter that much for the cyanobacteria and algae he was reading about a um a 2021 study from from China that found that they they encased these algae in these tiny kind of droplets and, and these these liquid crystal droplets or or these they they call them the biophotonic optofluidic micro cavities um, yeah and so they were able to boost the energy harvesting abilities in photosynthesis by two to three times um, it, it's quite incredible a um, uh, as as the light hit the droplet, it it, it curved around the edges and induced this uh, so called whispering gallery mode, um, where the light actually travels around the perimeter and and was trapped inside the droplet for longer. Um, so more got more of it, more of it got absorbed with photosynthesis. Yeah, that's cool. Really cool, and um, yeah. So the the UVB generally decreased the chlorophyll and, and photosynthesis. Um, but yeah, you know, like you were saying with the FICO Billy proteins, um, they, uh, they use those, they're the class of a light harvesting fluorescent proteins, um, in the strand of bacteria. Uh, but, but, but if we can trap the light inside the droplet for longer periods of time, then um, we should be able to trap the light inside the droplet for shorter periods of time as well. Um, so the light would bend through faster um, and allow for shorter times of um, uh, light if the UV uh, flux was too high above the cloud layers that that made any sense probably. yeah it does it does but why would you want it to be less is there some like engineering thing that it's better for it to have less in in case you're like somewhere above the cloud layers and and there's too much uh sunlight mm. that that might oh i see that's actually pretty cool when you say it's like a tunable oh that's actually super cool like a liquid crystal that's tunable that if you want to dial down the photosynthesis rate you can dial it down or you can bring it up that's pretty cool Yes, um, but I I don't think what they designed was tunable. But I theorize it it it, it could be tunable right. to to other microorganisms on uh, you know uh, closer to the star system or, or um, uh, higher up in the atmosphere on Earth and Venus and yeah. But then there were also all these. Uh, Interesting, there are these sulfuric acid coating uh, coatings out there. Um, there are these uh, really these, these Silcotech coatings called Silco Colloy and, and, and Dursen that can withstand aggressive concentrations of sulfuric acid. Um, and they they're well documented. Like these these fluoropolymer based composites. Um, they these PFA films there, they're perfluoroalkoxy, um, kind of this thermoplastic film um, that, that uh, 
holds a lot of potential. It, it could be encoded as some kind of membrane. Uh, um, yeah. That is cool. Uh, but but on um, for for corrosion resistant materials as well. I'm right there with you. I'm reading about that right now regarding these old Pioneer Venus probes. Yes. Literally, I'm like currently reading about the same stuff. It's pretty cool. They did not use floral stuff. They used uh, tantalum. Okay. As their protective shield, if you will, and then as insulation, they use Kapton. It's some like wax, like hydrocarbon wax. Ah. Um, was also reading this other study um, about how um, these scientists could actually increase the hydrogen production in the algae um, significantly, actually. It, it, they introduced an enzyme into the water where the algae live and, and um, it, it suppressed the sugar production and increased the hydrogen production by well, that's cool. 400% uh, without killing any organism. So, you know, in this like, like less hydrogen bioavailable environment, I figure that that might be important. Uh, yeah, that, that is cool. And, and uh, the the last uh, note here is that <laughs> is, uh, there are all these UV resistant nanostructured coatings too. Um, but um, but then also the, the, these there are these biofouling hydrophilic coatings um, that you know attract um, water and and. But, but they're commonly used for, you know, to repel the, the attachment of microbes and, and bacteria. So I figure uh, we, we could design, you know, the opposite kind of coatings to, you know, attract more growth of microbes and bacteria. Um, and, and kind of use that as, as uh, um, for, you know, naturally buoyant and suspended infrastructure in the clouds. Um, but I, I think what holds the most potential is um, this, this concept of these kind of, you know, uh, self-replicating aerodynamic and levitating algae mats. Um, can envision I'm curious to hear your thoughts too on on these. We could propose floating bioreactors in the clouds of Venus. Uh, <laughs> yes. And what would they power? Like, you talking like a human habitat? Are you talking like robotic exploration? What are you thinking? That's a great question. Um, I get what you're saying that the there's sufficient sun. You could get lots of production, whatever you want from up there. That means you can do all sorts of stuff. Now, if you wanted a robotic spacecraft, you also have solar power, but then when it hits the night side, it is a problem. So maybe this algae chamber would be good for 
the entire mission that you're not only dependent on the sun. That would be pretty cool. Yes. And figure initially, you know, would support like just the algae production and, and, and biomass production as a kind of a proof of concept for, for a crewed mission. Is planetary protection an issue or not? And so no one's approached this yet. It's going to be an issue, but it's fascinating. So the way I bring it up to you is it becomes a policy, legal, and part ethical question about sending an algal reactor to Venus. So if there are no planetary protection concerns about, let's say, if you did contaminate, let's say some algae got out in the clouds, could they survive and contaminate their environment? Could they survive and or contaminate the environment? You could say, listen, it's so acidic over there. Let's just say they come back from Da Vinci and those probes and say, you know what? It's super acidic. It's just super acidic. Then, okay, Earth microbes aren't going to survive there. Then all of a sudden, it's an open case scenario, right? You could say, go there. If you contaminate a little bit, it's not going to harm the environment because it's not a habitat, period. If you put a little more organics in the, in the atmosphere, I think we can handle that. So all of a sudden you have a great um, plan for algal reactor without any policy barriers in the way. So that's actually a really cool question. Like a good a master's thesis. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and to get around the sulfuric acid um, figure, you know, the, all sorts of coatings, but, but we can grow them, the algae in these, you know, closed environments with like potentially plastic material um lightweight plastics you know and, and, and so you're just naturally buoyant and um uh but yeah like you were mentioning that you've got to provide power during those long night periods um so yeah have to take a deeper dive <laughs> really interesting yeah, I think one of the routes that they would think right now is to build a better battery that one battery operates it, one charges. And then when you go on the night side, you use the charging. But then that's a lot of weight. I would think that's a whole other battery, which would be very, very heavy. I just don't know if an algal reactor is heavier or what. I just don't know. It might even be bigger. That I don't know. Considering the amount of power these things use is not very much, right? They don't capture that much energy, right? I don't think so. So the, the amount of power or gas that an algal reactor would need to make might not be that much. I don't know. Have people looked at this? I'm sure they have. I haven't heard anything about uh, bioreactors, algae reactors on Venus, but... Uh... Well, I'm the big interesting question. So if you had a, a robotic spacecraft, let's say like on Mars... You know, how much power does it need during the day and how much algae would you need to power that? That's actually, has anyone done that? Have you seen that anywhere? Um, I believe. Somebody's uh, done it somewhere. Yeah, I haven't looked into the literature uh, for, uh, on that as much as we should. Yes. Um, we'll keep you posted. I don't know. Okay. Yes. Um, it's exciting. Um, but 
Well, what's next? Sweet. I would uh, be honored to, you know, co-author a study with you sometime, uh, possibly on the design and mission of these uh, algae photobioreactors. And, and oh, that'd be great. I'd love that. That'd be really cool. Sweet. Yeah, if we could. Uh, I mean, I'm going to I'll throw it out there as well. I think there's funding out there for small studies as well, not just the algal bioreactor. That's a good one too. But also, uh, a microbial bioreactor that uses some in situ resource to replenish itself. I think there's actually uh, like seed funding out there for small scope studies. But yeah, we'll keep it in mind. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, we. Uh, yeah. I'm like, I have a tendency to start uh, too many projects. <laughs> to be very honest. so so kind of we could you know passively co-author over time and just throw our thoughts. No rush, no, no rush. Yes. Well, look forward to working with you, Rakesh. All right, cool.